Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Okay, well, we're about to uh, move into our time of looking at Scripture. We'll do some Scripture readings here in just a second. I do want to mention, if you're new around here, you've heard a few references to house churches. We gather on the fourth Sunday of every month in mid-sized house church communities spread out across five locations, and that's a way for us to really get to know one another relationally, to uh, have other ways of expressing what church community is all about. And so, I want to mention that today because if you're not with us next week, but then you try to come back the next week, we won't be here because on fourth Sundays, we don't gather in this space. So uh, you can go to our website, find out a lot more about that at parish.community slash housechurch, but I just wanted to mention that that's part of our rhythm for those of you who may be new with us. Um, before we jump into our sermon today, uh, let me set the pace and, the, and frame our time together. We have been walking this fall through a theme of God. God's big story. We are looking at the great story of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian is a question we've been asking ourselves. And the story of God is a drama that plays out in five acts, and we've been walking through those five acts. We've looked at Act 1, we've looked at Act 5, creation and recreation, and currently we're sitting in Act 2 as we sit with the reality of sin in the story of God. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. We'll continue talking about it today and uh, at next week as well as we continue sitting with this big idea of what does it mean to be shaped in the story of God and ultimately then in the image of Jesus. We're going to pull today from three resources, and so I just wanted to name them and commend them to you because sometimes uh, some of you like to read, and so these are some great books. First of all, Good and Beautiful and Kind is a book, uh, the subtitle is Becoming Whole in a Fractured World, and who doesn't need that? And so, uh, great, great resource that we'll reference today. And then Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, which is my book of the year, not that it's a new book, but it's just the book that has most shaped me this year. This is Eugene Peterson, and we'll reference that. And then this is a book called The Bible, and uh, maybe you've heard of it. And so, ultimately, our guide this morning is going to be 1 John. Uh, we're going to look at 1 John uh, and the pastoral words of John as he speaks to a community that is marked by sin and love, just as we are. So to get that process started, we've got two scripture readings. Ryan's going to come up here and read from 1 John, and then Jared will come up and read from the Gospels. And uh, whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand together as a way of recognizing that Jesus is in the room. So after Ryan's done and before Jared starts, go ahead and join me by standing, and we'll hear the living word speaking to us this morning. This is a reading from 1 John. <clears throat> if we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Now a much shorter reading from Luke 18, uh, verses 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I receive, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. The Gospel of the Lord. And you may be seated. We're going to begin today with some words from George Herbert, and uh, they will set us off on a course of talking about these ideas. He says this, Philosophers have measured mountains, fathomed the depths of seas, of states and kings, walked with a staff to heaven, and traced fountains. But there are two vast, spacious things, yet few there are who sound them, sin and love. Sin and love. And so today I want to sound those two words and offer some reflections on them. And as I said, this comes in the context of walking through the story of God and sitting in act two, the falling self and sin, and what happens when this world God has made, which is very good, experiences the fall of sin. So just to remind us, to make sure we're all on the same page, Act 1 and Act 5, where the story begins and where the story ends, we find that heaven and earth are one. They are united. God is with us, and everything is whole and holy and called very good. 
in the beginning of the story and in the end of the story, God is with us and heaven and earth are one. We are born into a world that got its start under the operative force of love. The whole cosmos created by a community of lovers, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the love they shared overflowing into family, overflowing into new creation, overflowing into this world. That is how our world got its start, under the force of love. Love is the first vast and spacious force at work in our world. And so the God whose essence and image is love made you in that image, love. Now, when we talk of love, uh, love is a very slippery word. It's a word that is really prone to cliche. It's a word that means all kinds of things depending on how we might mean it in that particular moment. For example, I love my wife and I love crab rangoon. I was just talking with someone about this. I mean, if you deep fry cream cheese, who doesn't love that? Uh, And so, I, I mean, I love these things. Do I love them in the same way? I mean, hopefully not, right? Like, it probably uh, says other things about me if I love Crab Rangoon the same way I love my wife. And yet we just use this word love. You know, I love, I love the Padres, and, uh, and I, I love you. And so, you know, this, this word can mean so many things. It is often sentimentalized. It is hijacked into Hallmark card cliches and Hollywood movies. And so I want to be clear that when I talk about the operative force of love, anytime I say the word love this morning, I am not talking about a watered down, sentimentalized love. I am not talking about do whatever you want and call it love kind of love. I am talking about capital L love. The love that moves into the mess of the world, the love that is patient, love that is kind, love that keeps no record of wrongs. Now these three remain faithful hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. And so John puts it this way in 1 John 3.16. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so love from the foundation of the world is cruciform in shape. It is self-giving. It is for the sake of others. That's what it means to operate in love, and that's how God is and has always been and always will be, and it is in that image that we were crafted to be people of love. So we've got this very good world operating under the force of capital L love, but a very good world is only possible when there is right relationship and right ordering of that world. And so when we come to the archetypal story of Adam and Eve, What we get is a story that is true of all of us in which our disordered affections disorder the world. And the good world that God has made becomes disordered by the wrong ordering of the hierarchy of how things are supposed to be. We have the creator, we have the creation, and when we get these things in the wrong order, we cause all sorts of trouble, and so we sound the second vast and spacious force at work in our world, sin. Sin is the other force that is true of our world. If you were not with us last week, I want to encourage you, go back and listen to the podcast because this is really part two of a conversation in which uh, a really important theme was established last week and today may not make as much sense without that. So I want to, we covered some foundational concepts about sin 
last week. And this idea that though sin has deeply distorted the image of God in us, God is at work to reform us into the image of God. We talked about the Felix Culpa, this fortunate fall where somehow in God's redemptive goodness, both the fall and recovery from the fall become the mercy of God. Like God's genius is that he takes the problem, the deepest wound, the worst part of the story, and somehow finds a way to redeem even that and include it in the salvation, in the healing, in the story in which he remakes the world. And so with that background, we talked about this idea that sin does not get the first word in the story and it does not get the final word in the story. And that is true of the story and it is true of your story. Sin is not the first or the final word and it's important that we place it in that right context. But having gotten clear on that, now what I wanna do is really zero in on sin because we don't wanna breeze over this. While it is true, it doesn't get the first word, it doesn't get the last word, it is a core part of this story. And so we want to look it full in the face. We need to really wrestle with why is this such a core part of the story. And so in the same way that love needs definition, sin needs definition. Because in our world, in our culture, in our religious, uh, you know, American culture, sin means all kinds of things just as love means all kinds of things. And so I don't know if this will resonate with you, but when I began following Jesus, I was taught this version of sin that I think might resonate with some of you, and, and Rich Lotus in his book uh, gives witness to this. So I'm just going to read this, and you can see if it resonates with you as well. He says, upon my entry into life with Christ, sin was overwhelmingly presented as a violation of a moral code. And as a result, holiness was understood with a similar negativity as sin avoidance. Sin was privatized. Confession meant admitting to someone the deep, dark secrets of my soul and maybe my internet search history. There was little, if any, connection to seeing sin as the repudiation of love. Instead, sin was the thing we did in private, usually things of which we were ashamed. A too small theology of sin can result in a false sense of spiritual maturity. Like the Pharisee in Christ's parable, we look around in pride and say, oh, thank God I'm not like those sinners. It's easy to think, well, I'm not doing that, so I must be okay. But sin is not just about not doing that. Sin is the negation of love. Sin is the negation of love. And so I want to be clear that personal holiness matters, that the choices we make matter, that behavior and morality matter, and we're going to talk about that in time. But what I want to do today is broaden our understanding of capital S, sin, which is different than lowercase sins. I learned all about avoiding lowercase sins, but I learned very little about capital S, sin. Capital S, sin is the other operative force in the world. It is love's counterforce. If love, capital L, love is blowing the world this way, capital S, sin is blowing the world back this way. It is the resistant force. And whereas love is bringing wholeness to the world, sin is fracturing the world. It's bringing brokenness to the world. And our world is eating away on itself. And creation is groaning all around us. I think if many of us just were honest about how we feel about this moment we find ourselves in, I mean, we feel deep fractures in our world. 
in the economic parts of our world, in the political parts of our world, in uh, the racial and sexual realms of our world, in the religious parts of our world, there is great fracturing. And the relationships in our lives split apart because of these things. And we find ourselves deeply distrusting each other. We react like pinballs on social media. I mean, it's a mess, right? You go onto to Twitter or Instagram, and it's like just pinballs, just bouncing off of reactivity. We prefer our brand of rightness over any sense of unity and forgiveness and love. And I mean, we all see this. People I used to trust and love and consider myself a friend with post that one thing that time, and I go, well, I'm done with that person, right? Or families that used to gather around Thanksgiving tables all of a sudden go, well, we have different opinions on politics, and now there's this unspoken divide in the family. And it seems to be increasing, right? I mean, do you all feel this? It seems to be increasing. Sin, sin, sin. I mean, what we're going to find next week is sin has an exponential element to it. it. It becomes cyclical and exponential in the way that it works. Rich's book title is a play on this really well-known poem by Langston Hughes, and we're going to look at it here for a moment. This is the poem. He says, I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. Sin is the biggest worm in the rind. It is eating away at our world. To be born into this world is to live under its pervasive power. It is the thing that is impacting all of us. And what's fascinating to me is if we were to line up a thousand people and say, do you want this world to be marked by love? I mean, who's going to say no to that, right? Yeah, yeah, I want this world to be marked by love. But to take love seriously we have to take sin seriously because sin is the opposing force to love. It is the thing that is pushing the world away from love, and so we have to take it seriously. We have to take our part in it seriously. Sin is malforming us. It is curving us inward on ourselves. It makes us selfish and self-protective and self-promoting. It is the Genesis 3 force. And so when we talk about sin, I want us to expand our imaginations beyond moralism or legalism and instead think of sin as the thing that is propelling fear and shame and hiding and grasping and violence and hatred in the world. It is anti-love. It is anti-love. In Genesis 3, what happens is there's this curse that enters the story. And part of the great healing of the end of our story, Act 5, Revelation 22, is these words that say, never again, nothing accursed will be there, right? But right now, we live under the curse. And it's really important to name the curse in Genesis 3 is placed on the serpent and it is placed on the ground. It is not placed on the child of God. We are not cursed. That is not how the story goes. But instead, the water we swim in, this idea of the ground being cursed, I think is an image of something is fundamentally broken in our world. There is a worm eating at the rind, and that's the world we find ourselves in against our choice, whether we like it or not. It is simply the reality of the world that we are in, and we need categories for that. Our modern world has this impoverished understanding of love. We all know that but it has even less of an understanding of sin. We don't have ways of talking about this in our world. 
One of the things that we find is that a lot of people or projects or politics that set out to do good in the world, that set out well-intentioned to make a positive difference in the world, they only end up deepening the divides. I mean, have you noticed this? I've got this good thing, and then we end up becoming a mirror image of the thing we set out to oppose with the same reactivity, the same hate, we're using the same tools. It's not healing anything, it's simply the opposite fracture. And we see this at work all of the time, and I think part of the reason is because we're trying to make love more at the center of the world while refusing to name or being naive of how to name sin. And so we cannot bring love into a situation without recognizing and wrestling with its counterforce. Barbara Brown Taylor says that sin exists in our world whether we name it or not, and if we cannot name it, if we will not name it, we simply end up speechless before it. And so there's this thing happening that we cannot name with reality, and as a result, we don't know how to talk about it, we don't know how to heal it. And meanwhile, Scripture talks about sin so much that in biblical Hebrew, there's over 50 different words for sin, right? They have this robust lexicon around what sin looks like in the world. And so if we're going to improve our cultural and sociological reality, we need theological help as well. Theology has categories that help us make sense of the world, and in our modern day, we tend to throw those out. Right? But we need this theological vocabulary of sin and love to make sense of the world around us. And so, this is what John is doing in 1 John. Uh, I think it's a lot of what's happening in this text. Over and over, we hear John say the words sin and love. Over and over, John is the beloved. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He has this special relationship with love. He leans against the chest of Jesus in the upper room. I mean, John takes love seriously. And because he takes love so seriously, he takes love's opposite seriously as well. And so I want to chart his theology of love and sin. And it starts with this, that we are beloved. We are beloved. And again, more on this last week. I don't want to skip over this. It's important to say when we talk about this because it so rarely is said that what is most true about us is not sin. Deeper than original sin is original blessing, is original goodness. That's where the story starts. It's a Genesis 1 story. It's a God-centric story, not a Genesis 3 sin-centric story. And so we are loved. And John uses words to that effect. I mean, he uses these tender and affectionate words. He says to the people he's writing to, a collection of Christians just like us, he calls them the beloved. He calls them little children. He calls them God's children, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. I mean, we are a community of the beloved. We are a family of our Father that is marked by the first force of love, this great force of love. That is what this community is all about. We are beloved. And we are sinners. We are sinners. And this is the part that for some is easier to name and for others is really hard to name. And we've named it multiple times in this service already. Like we sang this, these words, I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. And, and for some of us, like including myself, like there's part of me that that goes down really awkwardly. But I want to say that just as it is spiritually unhealthy to think that sin is what defines me, it is equally spiritually unhealthy to have no ability to name that sin is involved in my life at all, right? We have to be able to say with John that both of these things are true about our reality. 
We are beloved. We are sinners. And healthy spirituality can hold the tension of all of this. And immature spirituality has to go to the extremes of one or the other. And so we want to find ways to make sense of this. And I want to just keep naming, yes, what is true about us, that image we used last week. We were created. Your life is a mirror. And that mirror reflects the image of God to the world. And what happens with sin is that layers of mud and dirt and ash and soot have been piled onto your mirror so that you cannot reflect the image of God in the way God intended. People get this uh, malformed reflection. They, they get a distorted reflection. And yet the mirror is not the problem. The mirror is not fundamentally broken. It's the stuff on top of the mirror that is broken, right? And, and, and that's the reality of sin in our lives. And yet it is also true that though we are not debased, though we are not de despised, though we are not depraved, we do swim in this water long enough, often enough, that sometimes we start to go, oh, the ash and the mud and the soot feels a little bit more comfortable to me than the force of love, which feels foreign. And so I start to say yes to a lesser reality. And to be a sinner is not to say I have no worth. It is not an identity definition. It is a diagnosis of the current reality of our lives. It is simply to say we are too impacted and afflicted by the reality of sin, and I have become comfortable with lesser things. I have been hoodwinked into lesser stories. I've given myself to lesser loves. I have looked to created things to fill my deepest longings. I, too, have tried to usurp God and be God. It is simply to say, yeah, I play a part in this fracturing of the world. That's what it means to say, I am a sinner. And so we sin. Look at what John says in uh, verse 7 and 8. He says, If we walk in the light as he is himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. There's that mirror image again. We need to be cleansed. What needs to happen is that the image be restored. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us right? And so we are involved and complicit in sin. Um, to say that sin is a minor issue for me is to say that love is a minor issue for me. To say that I'm not going to deal with sin is to say I'm not going to deal with people. Because at the end of the day, Sin is not the violation of rules. It is the violation of relationships, whether the relationship with a living God or the relationship with a living other in our lives. We sin not against a commandment, but against a relationship, against a person, because sin is always dehumanizing. It is always pushing back on creation. It is anti-creation. And as a result, it wants to make my creation more important than your creation. And so I show up to you trying to coercively manipulate you into being an object used for my purposes, my agenda. I'm turning you into an it that I might get my way. And so sin is tempting and malforming me to reduce you to less than a living soul. And that's what sin is. When we find ourselves in this moment where we're going, eh, you know, is this sin? Well, we don't have to pull out our checklist of all of the verses in the Bible. We, we go, am I loving well? Am I reducing the relationships in my life 
Is this less than what capital L love that lays its life down for others would ask of me? So, sin is the problem. And uh, it's fascinating, we're, we're starting to wrap this up, wrap this up, wrap this up? <laughs> we're starting to wrap this up, what does that mean? <laughs> I need, I'm really tired, guys. Uh, okay, so Peterson says this, and I'm not going to put it up on the screen, I'm just going to read it. One of the things that we have a hard time doing in our modern culture is naming the problem of sin and therefore being able to do anything about it. We keep looking to other things to heal the world. We keep insisting something else is wrong with the world. So he says this, when improvements need to be made in our communities, sin is not usually targeted as the place to start. Instead, the launching pads for improving our world are knowledge, power, and wealth. These three things can be great tools for good, and all of them are involved in the Christian life. But the lack of them is not what is wrong with the world. Sin is what is wrong with the world. If what is wrong with the world is not sin, but rather ignorance, then all we need to do is find the right formulas, techniques, and educations. We assume that if we can just improve our schools, if we can just learn a little bit more, if we can just have more information, life will improve. And yet hundreds of years of trying this have proved to be a failure. If what is wrong with the world is not sin, but weakness, then we simply need to improve our political processes and civic engagement and social realities. And yet the most powerful democracies the world has ever seen have resulted in a society that still has significant problems of injustice. If what is wrong with the world is not sin, but lack of money, then we just need to develop more businesses and banks and investments and jobs, and everyone will be prosperous. But we have been as successful as any nation in history at making money and instead the fallout in greed, exploitation, and dishonesty is appalling. The interesting thing about these approaches is we can spend our lives pursuing them and never have to name sin, but neither do we have to name love. The only place, quite literally, the only place where sin is taken seriously is in the Christian community. And yet even here, our churches often resort to the solutions of just a little more knowledge, just a little more power, just a little more money. And so sin is what is at the heart of the problem of the world. And that problem has only one solution, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the solution to the problem of sin. Sin is relational, and so it must be healed relationally. Look at what John says in 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so sin is killing the relationships. And relationships can't be, if there's a death in a relationship, only forgiveness can bring resurrection. Only forgiveness can bring it back to life. And so we must engage forgiveness. We must have a story big enough to engage forgiveness. And then finally, and this is a fascinating reality in what John does here. Finally, we are forgiven, and then we are formed back by the force of love. And this is fascinating. He says this, this thing. He goes to great lengths in 1 John to convince us that we are sinners, right? Like, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar, he says. And then, if you go to the next one for me, Chris, he says this, which is fascinating. Uh, next one after that. Yeah, thanks. Those who have been born of God do not sin. They cannot sin because they've been born of God. Well, what? You just convinced me that I'm a sinner, and then you say, well, you can't sin. What's going on here? And I think what John is saying 
is that having been forgiven of the forming force of sin, what we can no longer do, what we simply cannot continue to do, is agree with the force of sin as the shaping operative force in our lives. To be forgiven is to repent, is to turn around, and is to say, I want to push back on that force of sin and move the world back in the direction of love. And therefore, I say no to that way, I say yes to this way. We do this as our kids come in by laying our lives down for one another. Laying our lives down for one another, being forgiven and being formed. Let's take a moment, we'll pray together. God, it's so hard for us to reckon with this reality that we are complicit in sin and yet that does not define us. It feels like it would have to. Would you help us to, to be able to sit in this reality that we have confession to do, we have formation to engage in, we need forgiveness, and we are your beloved children, secure in your love. Help us with that, in Jesus' name.